James. Duncan. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. All right. So you might know that James and I both mispronounce words. And so James has got one for me. What did you mispronounce this Okay, time? Duncan. Let's see if you can guess this one. Myraid. Myriad. We, we talked about this one in the past. No, we haven't. Yes, we I swear to God. In like episode three, you, you said Myraid as well. Oh, I did it again. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like, it's it looks back. It's like you've got like a fancy word to show people and then you just butcher it so bad <laughs> that you just totally did a, just the, a massive the, disservice. The worst thing is that if I say Myraid to you, you can instantly say like, no, it's Myriad. But I said it in front of someone who English is not their first language. So they're like, Myraid what? Like, what is... I'm like, you know, Myraid. So I had to, I just doubled down. And like, is someone it... else was there and I said like, you know, you know, a lot of... And they're like, um, I think you mean Myriad. I'm like, ah, dang. Sweet Jesus. All right. Um, this is, yeah, like, what I realise is that life is probably just a series of looking silly in front of other people. Mm. It's also fun. You get to laugh about it. You have a good time. Okay, I have a really good quote, just quickly. Do Com- it. Confidence is not believing that you are always right. Confidence is not letting it bother you that you can be wrong. Hmm. I sort of heard one which is like, there's a thin line between confidence and arrogance. Mm. One's knowing it and one's thinking it. Mm. Um so yeah all right so today we're talking about a podcast called philosophize this great and if podcast. you haven't you must listen uh it's run by a guy called stephen west and i remember when i bothered to look him up online i found out that he was 28 and that when he started doing this he was something like 24 and i was like holy hell it's like there's some seriously insightful stuff in there so um, I've read a little bit of philosophy, and some of it is just really deeply hard to, to, to get your head around. Like, like I don't know... Wheat Bix level dryness here. Oh, my God. Like, Bertrand Russell's A History of Western Philosophy. I don't know if I'll ever be able to understand it. He's just too smart, and, and it's at a level that I just can't access. Whereas this is kind of the opposite. You don't have to know anything about philosophy, and Stephen does an incredible job of making things accessible. Mm, okay. um, so, so we highly recommend him. What we thought we'd talk about today... And this is going to sound really quite highfalutin. I hope I pronounced that right, but it's hopefully going to be accessible. Um, the four schools of the Hellenic Age of Philosophy, um, and they are Epicureanism, Stoicism, Skepticism, and Cynicism. And so we thought we'd start off with Epicureans. Uh, and so here's my summary of this. Now, I'm sure that someone who knows properly about what philosophy is is going to say that this is a completely incorrect summary. But this is here it goes. Pleasure is the goal and is achieved by an absence of pain and fear. Living a simple life helps with this. Happiness comes from within, not external places. And so I thought maybe we'd start with the first question is that pleasure is an absence of pain or fear. And I thought I'd give you one um, anecdote for myself. Uh, So it depends on what the underlying outcome of an activity is. So for instance, I think... You can have a job that's good, but then you have the variations, like you have good days and bad days. And if it's a good job and there's no pain, then you have good. But you can also have a bad job that has good and bad days. And on a good day, it's good. But if you remove the variation, it's bad. So I don't necessarily believe that a good life is an absence of pain and fear. I think the underlying activity that you're doing has a sort of you know, a thing that it's around. So not necessarily would be my two cents. Mm, yeah, so um, 
Like there, 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 there's a lot to unpack here. So um, one of the really tricky things around talking about these particular ancient schools of philosophy, so just for anybody's reference, the Hellenic period was right after the death of Alexander the Great. So we're talking thousands of years ago in ancient Greece. And um, one of the other challenges is in, in the translations, like immediately when you hear skepticism and cynics, we immediately go to our current day translation of what those mean. And there's actually a far more, um, uh, I guess, nuanced explanation around that. So when we talk about Epicureanism, um, which Duncan, I think you did a, a, a fine job of summarizing in terms of the absence of pain of fear. But they also talk about um, this state of ataraxia, which um, I, I quite like the Wikipedia definition, which is being in a perpetual or a robust state of impertubability. Oh my God. Imp in <laughs> 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 What does that even mean, James? Do you know what it means? Well, equanimity or tranquility, right? Um, so it's more than just like an absence of bad. It's actually being a state of tranquil, uh, or, you know, just being in this peaceful state or happiness kind of thing. Um, so, what this, uh, so what this tells to me is that uh, Epicureanism is all about augmenting your life to be in this state of peacefulness, I guess not just about removing the bad from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's both. It's it's kind of that you need to have the underlying goodness, you know, so good things that you're doing, mm -hmm. and to do them well. So I used to say a good life is doing the right things times doing things right. And basically what I've learned is that you can stuff anything up. <laughs> um, so a great way I found to do something that I could like, but to not enjoy it is to try to like over, um, you know, stack my plate. So I've got like 200% to eat in 100% of the time. And so whilst that's not necessarily pain and fear, I think there's many ways to not enjoy things. Pain and fear are one thing. So that's also I was going to get to. It's not just pain and fear. It's just trying to do too much and it becomes you know, unenjoyable. And so I don't know if you have other ways that you can make things bad. So pain and fear is one, but just try to do too much is another one for me. Mm. Um, well, so pain and fear were uh, another thing that they were talking about in uh, being two states. So pain is your constant state of negative uh, being and fear is in a future state of uh, like negative anticipation. So um, it's, it's trying to make sure so that you're, in a, you're understanding what is within and without your litmus of awareness, so to speak. Um, so what this reminds me of, though, when they're talking about this, um, trying to remove pain um, as being, I guess, the, the catalyst for a good life, is a um, discussion between Sam Harris and Jordan, Pe Jordan Peterson, two very uh, well-known uh, intellectualists, I guess you could say, of today. Did you say intellectualists? Yes, I did. Intellectuals, I think is what it is. <laughs> God, I, I, I hate that we're messing up the word intellectuals. Yeah. I think I probably got it wrong and you probably got it wrong. There's a word that you can stuff up. <laughs> talking about intellectual, you know, anyways, go on. Yep. <laughs> so they had, a, they had a recent series of talks in uh, Vancouver uh, and in, uh, in Scotland, I think, uh, somewhere in uh, the UK. Um, but one of the, they, first they start off by talking about how they agree on a lot of things, so they then honed in on where they disagree. And it was based around Sam Harris's um, very noble attempt, 
in defining universal truth um, because he thinks we should all govern ourselves on good ideas and in order to understand what's a good idea you need to discover what a universal truth is and so he would always give the example of imagine a world or a universe or reality where everyone suffers unimaginable pain for their entire lives and then they die uh, and then he would suggest that we just take that as the bottom level uh, or base case worst case scenario so to speak and so it stands to reason that anything better than that um, is a move towards being in a state of uh, I guess happiness or tranquility and that we should do everything we can to move the dial in that direction so it's a very very similar take on this Epicurean um, I guess school of thought around how we should try and remove all the bad from the world or from our lives um, but I thought um, just quickly Jordan Peterson had a really good point uh, when he said the challenge that he has with that is that everything is defined through human subjectivity because we, we have nothing but our own perception to understand the world which means that there can be no universal truth so I thought that was actually an interesting spin on the Epicurean um, philosophy which is well if the universal truth of happiness is to remove pain can that actually be universally applied yeah, I'm not so sure they're saying that the universal thing is to remove pain, but this is just um, one sort of anecdote as an aside. Now, I believe this is true. Jordan Peterson, I think, is religious. Is that right, James? Um, okay, so no, he's not religious, but he believes, he, like, let's just say he's not an atomist. He, he believes. So he's not like, I don't know, like a hardcore, or I don't know, the fundamental, you know, word of God is the. Yeah. Bible and you read every single word in there. Um, and and Sam Harris is an atheist, like quite famously. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. So Sam Harris is definitely an outspoken atheist. So I would say that Jordan Peterson does not identify as an atheist. Yeah, so he's sort of is uh, Christian, but not like I don't know, like a fundamentalist Christian, as an example. Mm. And so this is a quote from Yuval Harari that I quite liked, and this might give away where I sit on this spectrum. <laughs> he said, "If you fool a million people for a month, it's fake news." A billion people for a millennia, it's a religion. <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe this is one of these things, pain and fear. Um, and so is, is part of this like pain and fear coming from the unknown? And so part of this, I think people were sort of thinking, oh, well, you know, someone's, you know, I mean, worried about being murdered and someone's like, I don't know, torturing me. Is that pain and fear? Or is it pain and fear of the mind? So I was sort of trying to think about, like, you know, what is an absence of this? And an absence of this is, like, are you in physical pain or are you in sort of mental anguish? And I think that that both can, and I think, you know, that you're more likely to kill yourself now than you are to be killed in a, in a Western nation. I mean, if you're living in, you know, the Middle East or like Syria or something, it might be slightly different. Um, and, you know, it's more, the sugar's a bigger problem than is gunpowder. Um, and so for me, um, yeah, I think that which is one of these things I think Buddhism sort of comes into it. And this is what I think partially is, in, you know, learning how to not worry about the future, which they say is anxiety, or to worry about the past, which they say is depression. And to be absence of your mind in placing itself in fear and pain, I think there's a lot of that. And I think, at least for me, um, yeah, that, that's something that I've been trying to work on. Yeah, so, um, and so this, um, this is what we'll find there's quite a bit... So there's a lot of overlap between Epicurean Stoicism um, and the other schools. But um, I think it started in Epicureanism, which is um, the, 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 the state in which one achieves 
ataraxia is when they are closest to nature. Now, this is not saying that you're going out to the bush and hugging trees. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the ancient Greek understanding of nature was that of the world or the universal reality. Um, and so this is about you are best positioned to live a happy or virtuous life when you are in harmony with nature, when you understand reality. So it's kind of like to that point around, well, fear and not so much to the same extent as pain, but they're both still assigned a value by your mind. And so and it's a, Epicureanism talks about how your mind is inherently flawed because it only has a single perspective of nature. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to talk about if you can, um, like, I guess, change your mind to understand the laws of nature rather than the perceptions of your mind, you will be much more closer to being in harmony with that nature. I like that. Um, they say that you get into trouble when you have an incorrect understanding of the world. Mm. And I think this is part of what they're saying. So nature is there, like the world is, you need to understand it. So you can't bend the world to you. <laughs> um, you know, you have to understand it. And so where you have incorrect understandings of yourself, which is part of nature or, or the world or whatever else it is, that gets you into trouble. Mm. And so if you can understand the world and then live in harmony with it rather than fight it, that doesn't mean you can't, you know, affect it. But, you know, you got to be realistic. <laughs> mm. um, I think that's really true. So look, as an example, I try to understand myself better and the world better and that I've got blind spots and ego distortions mm. and that I need to find those things. And, and I've found that slowly as I realize a better understanding of the world, I've been able to live a better life. Yeah. So, so Epicurus actually um, lists out four, uh, I guess, approaches to ending pain and achieving tranquility. Now, stay with me here. It's pretty... <laughs> <laughs> what, what word have you got? <laughs> Tetrapharmakos. Oh, God. Got it. Nailed it. What's that, what's that mean? Um, okay, so Tetrapharmakos is basically, it, it's an old medical term um, being like there are four... Um, elements that you must administer in order to heal, I guess. Um, okay. That's a, it's a, that's a very bastardized version of the definition, but it's close. Yeah. Um, so there's four elements. One, God holds no fear. Two, death holds no worries. Three, good can easily be attained. And four, evil can be endured. So number one, God holds no fear. Um, this just takes... So, so Epicureanism is steeped in... Uh, the Epicurean was an atomist, that which basically posits that we are just made of atoms, um, we collect together to form bodies and minds, and then when we die, they just disperse again, there's no gods and afterlife. So do not worry about this notion of a vengeful god, or whether or not you get into heaven or hell, because it's just, um, you know, we're just bumping around at each other, so that doesn't need to take up any of your concern. Uh, and that kind of leads into the number two, death holds no worries, because when we die, atoms dissipate, and so do the senses. Number three, good can easily be attained because in his version, it's just about being the absence of pain, which I think you and I talked about a little bit and it's not that simple, but in the sense of um, this is one of the elements of achieving it. And last, evil can be endured. So specifically what he talks about here is pain. So pain is about the senses of the mind associating to that pain and you can control how you relate to that pain. So there you go. Four things is all you need so I can to live a good atavastic life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I was thinking about one of these things. And so 
I don't know, work is the the hours you spend the most awake and, and I really think you can enjoy work. And so I was thinking about what my equation would be for a good job. Now, obviously, there are other parts to life and I think you need to have friendships and other things to have a good life. This is just one component. So I think one of the easiest hacks is to help make the world better. So the first part is help make the world better. Mm-hmm. Then you've got good relationships at work. Then you have a good culture. So that means, for instance, that you fail openly, that you're radically candorous and other things. And then you also have work that challenges you. And so if you have this, help the world, good relationships, good culture, and work that challenges you, I think you've got a good job. And this is something that you would do, you know, I don't know, say for 40 hours a week if you had unlimited money. So I think one of the ways to sort of litmus test is check your like if you tomorrow inherited fu money, which is enough money to say fu to your boss, uh, you never had to work again. Would you rock up at work? And my answer is yes. And I think that if your answer is no, now obviously this is a very fortunate place. You know, maybe you should be trying to look for a job where you can find this. Mm. And the only way that I've known how to find things is to look. And sometimes it takes a long, long, long time. <laughs> so I don't know, like. You know, I'm sure people have, or not, but you know, some people might have looked for relationships in the past and mm. found out that perhaps the place they're looking wasn't it, and they need to look some more. <laughs> and I think a similar outcome in jobs. Um, mm. So, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that, James? Well, so I think it's a tricky. Um, like th- this is basically the question that um, people are confronted with when you're living in a thriving. Um, I won't just say Western. When you're when you're living in a thriving society, you have um, the opportunities before you to find that, uh, I guess, that purposeful life. Um, but, you know, when you lay it out in the, um, the, the separate elements that you did, you know, rewarding uh, relationships, purposeful work, engaging challenge, all of those different kinds of things, um, it might seem a, quite a bit overwhelming for someone to try and go after all those things at once. Um, it might just simply be that they can find meaning in one of those things, and then once that's, um, I guess, achieved, you can move on to the next. Um, like for for example, um, you know, in whatever work I do, I do find meaning in that it helps support my family. Now that's just mm. one consideration. I'm not positing that you should um, accept that that's the only thing for you to go after, and then you just um, accept the rest as a given in your life. No, um, not at all. But um, there's you know there's a hierarchy of needs here. <laughs> Like, I don't know, some random like fellow Maslow's called Maslow. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't mentioned that yet. <laughs> Ray Dalio. Anybody else that we constantly mention? Hey, Ray Dalio is... Oh, my God. I've got to talk about Ray Dalio as well. <laughs> um, well, Ray Dalio posits that you must always accept your reality and understand it, which is very Epicurean, I thought. So, um, mm. there you go. Sound fine. Anyway, so... Um, it might be that if you can start off by understanding what your hierarchy is or your priority is, and then you can go down that list. So, so if, you know, for you, Duncan, it sounds a lot like your first um, on your list is your purpose, is to do something that's good for the world. You know, um, if, so I guess to I kind of put it back to you. I don't now. think, no, I'd say um, this is an equation and they were all times. Yeah. So help the world times good relationships times good culture times challenging work. But that's a so for, evenly for weighted. me. It, no, no, it's anything times zero is zero. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how good the rest of them are. If one of them is zero, ultimately it's going to ruin them. And so for me, um, 
I think you, 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 it's right. You should try to, you know, I don't know if you can work on everything at the same time. So don't try to do more new than you can handle. Um, so yeah, try to figure out what it is you want and to do it. And I think this is like living in, in you know, in, in um, with nature is understanding the world and then figuring out how to have it work with you, not against you. And so I suppose one other thing, which maybe we should move on because I've been 20 minutes on this one thing, was, was a simple life, they said here. Mm. And I thought I'd ask a question about this. Um, you know, what is your favorite expensive thing and what is your favorite sort of cheap thing? And this is one thing that I think, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, Duncan didn't realize. I kind of had somehow linked more expensive with better. So as an example, a meal that was a very fancy, like $100 meal was better than a $10 meal. And what I've realized is the happiness I get um, from, so this is a sandwich place around the corner and they do this vegan Reuben sandwich and it costs $16, which is expensive for a sandwich. But my God, like the amount of happiness <laughs> packed into it is like out of control. And so I don't know if it's like, you know, capitalism or consumerism that is sort or of these things. Materialism. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, especially as a sort of teenager, I think, you know, I was like, if I could have lots of money, I'd be happy. And if I was poor, I'd be sad. And I've sort of realized, you know, no money will make you sad, but lots of money will make you happy. And mm. that I have been able to start to decouple happiness from money. And so, again, like my favorite foods are most expensive. So I do think that living a simple life mm. can help. It's like basically a life where happiness comes from within, mm. i.e. how much happiness does this give you, not from the external, how much this cost. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Um, I would... I would posit that I am living the simplest life possible for me at this particular point. Um, so did you just order a steel Apple Watch? Uh, I will not comment on... Uh... So the simplest life possible. It was, this is not the cheapest Apple Watch you can get, just by the way. So you might decide that somehow you needed an Apple Watch. And I'd argue that you don't necessarily need one. And then you certainly don't need... You know, one that's not the cheapest one. So there, there, I, there, I'm, there I'm are, very sure I agree with the, your there, there are very life. plausible utilistic reasons for having an Apple. Simplest sim- life possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's, it's no way it could be any simpler. <laughs> Look, it's got a sapphire scratch resistance. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I have, I have young children in the house that can. <laughs> what are they going to scratch? The yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Whatever. Uh, I'm looking for longevity here. Um, <laughs> yep. And, cool. I, and, and it has walkie-talkie features. So my, my partner okay, and I have a chat about Apple Watches. We're here to talk about <laughs> the Hellenic Age of oh, Philosophy. Come on, get back on point. Who, who digressed here, I ask. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So in terms of living a simplest life, um, like to answer your question, Duncan, I don't know if it's a cop-out, but the most expensive thing that I enjoy is my home. Um, we've got a mm. far, far and away the most expensive thing we invest ourselves in. But it's just when you talk about the equation or the balance between cost and worth, the worth just so outweighs the cost. You don't even think about it in that way. Mm. Um, our lives as a small family, because up until this year or halfway through this year, we lived in apartments and we were comfortably lived doing so, um, at least until we were, uh, became parents. But it just, um, you know, it kind of was that frog in a boiling pot of water, if you've heard that analogy, where it was just, everything was just way too <laughs> condensed for us to live a harmonious life together in a small two-bedroom apartment. But when we moved into a, um, a small home with a backyard and separate living areas, and people can just live in their own quarters, it just gave space for everyone mm. to live expansively. So, like... 
without a shadow of a doubt, that was the most worthwhile investment I've ever made. All right. Very cool. Let's move on to the second school, which is the Stoics or Stoicism. Here's my summary. (laughs) Virtue is the only good. Mm. Good acts are in and of themselves the goodness. Virtue is sufficient for happiness. Being virtuous, not allowing ourselves to be controlled by our desire or pleasure or fear or pain. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so they had a quick definition of what virtue is. Um, It consists of temperance, which is the ability to control your gut instincts and rein them in. Courage, the mental strength to do the right decisions, even when it gets tough. Justice, treat others the way you'd want to be treated, you know, the golden rule. Wisdom, this is the knowledge and foresight to deal with life situations. And so basically, wisdom, you know, is, oh, sorry, wisdom, virtue Mm. is the only good and is sufficient for happiness. So do you think it's sufficient for happiness, James? For, um, For living virtuously? Um, well, do you like, they say virtue is the only good mm. and virtue is sufficient for happiness. You don't need anything else. And so I suppose I was saying, do you think virtue is, is sufficient? Like you don't need anything else except virtue. Okay, so uh, if I had to speak personally, then no. <laughs> um, and that's Explain because, why. Well, because I'm not a stoic. I, am, I, can <laughs> I can see things where I actually do have um, a dependence uh, external to myself or my mind. Apple Watch. <laughs> I was going to talk about relationship with uh, go, go, family, go, go, but, go, go. Um, where that does govern a lot of my happiness. Um, if you are a stoic, you are entirely um, of the mindset that things are given and things are taken away. You do, you, if, um, if you lose a loved one or a family member or your livelihood, then you are mentally prepared for that, and that does not. That should not, in theory, affect your happiness. I can sit before you here and say yeah, it would definitely affect my happiness. <laughs> um, but I, I, that's not to say that the, 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 the general viewpoints or philosophy behind Stoicism doesn't resonate with me because it does. Um, and I think it's just really helpful for, um, for those listening to understand there's a lot of similarity between Stoicism and Epicureanism. Um, I think they both came from the same schools of Socratism as well, and they just branched off into their own kind of um, specific elements. So both schools offer similar ways to achieve a tranquil state of mind. Both schools agreed you didn't need much more than your basic needs being met um, in order to achieve that. Um, However, the difference is where you focus your efforts once those basic needs were being met. So I think, Duncan, you, and this is where you touched on it, Epicurean was basically about dedicating your time to achieving pleasure. Stoics believe you should dedicate your time to achieve virtue. Um, mm. so, that, so that is like where you, you're going to find a lot of similarity. That's where you can start to think about those uh, specific elements where they start to spread apart. Yeah, so I think virtue is good. <laughs> is it the only good? And is it sufficient for happiness? And so... I, you know, I think that I hope to do some virtuous things, um, you know, that I can control myself and that I do things that are good for others. Um, but what about, like, say, hedonism as an example? Mm. And so hedonism is a school of thought that argues the pursuit of pleasure and intrinsic goods are the primary and most important goals in human life. And I was like, this doesn't on its surface sound like it's very virtuous. And so, you know, what I sort of try to do, I say this, is six days a week of selfless happiness and one day a week of selfish happiness. 
Mm. So six days a week of helping others. And one day a week of, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, be a hedonistic human. Mm. And I suppose, I think you can do virtuous hedonism. And so Ooh. this is perhaps me basically, uh, you know, I'm sure you can do whatever the opposite of virtuous is not very good. Uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you could be self-serving. So I think virtuous hedonism is where you're having fun. You're not necessarily helping others, but it's not at the expense of others. So this isn't by putting people down or this isn't by being tremendously wasteful with you know resources. I'm sure that some of these things you might be able to spend money you know, elsewhere. But for me... Um, they say that you know downtime for machines is a bug, but downtime for humans is a feature. And do you know um, humans need to have downtime? Mm. And I've tried to work all hours of all days, and, and frankly, you know, I end up being a sad sack. <laughs> and so I think hedonism has a purpose. It mm. helps you be more virtuous. Mm. And if you're doing, uh, you know, it helps you with the days of selfless happiness. And if you are doing. Um, it at not at the expense of others, and I do think it's possible to, to virtuous hedonism. I'm going to feel my soul die just a little bit now because I'm going to repeat a quote that you often say, but there is no intrinsically good hedonism or intrinsically bad, but hedonism done well is good and hedonism done bad is bad. Mm. <laughs> but um, what you said in the beginning, I thought um, you were actually really close to something, but in terms of like hedonism in, in a way that doesn't adversely affect others, um, I don't think necessarily need to be hedonism, but... I do think you are much more onto something when you talk about, you know, human beings needing downtime as a feature. So there is a place where it could be uh, argued that it's virtuous for you to put yourself first or to pursue um, or things that are self-indulgent. Because what that does is that it puts energy back in your cup. It looks after the things that give you pleasure or enjoyment or happiness um, that makes you a more fulfilled person, that makes you a better person to be around, that gives you the energy that you need to dedicate to your work or to your family or to your friends, those kind of things. So I think um, that idea actually does um, hold ground in the sense that you could have this, um, this element of hedonism in your life that is in harmony with being a virtuous person. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I was sort of thinking about is also that, you know, the act is really important, like whether or not you want to be virtuous. So it doesn't matter about the outcome if you didn't have good intent. Mm. So for instance, you might get a good outcome, but you weren't virtuous about it. But also you might have a virtuous intent. Like you tried to help someone, but it didn't end up working. And so I think the activity or the energy you put into something is really important. So just to join it into that, if you're putting good energy, virtuous energy, i.e. an intent to help, and that doesn't mean you necessarily need to help right now. It might be that you need to have a break so that you can help people on Monday, you know. Um, it, it's virtuous. Mm. And But if you're only doing it so that you can then get paid money or something, uh, so that you can then go and, I don't know, have a big Friday or something, maybe watch. that's... Yeah. <laughs> Take take food from your children's mouths. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that watch on your wrist feels really good because it's all the food. <laughs> Sorry, darling. We're not eating today. <laughs> um, but basically, I think 
virtue is really important. Um, and I think that you, you ultimately, you know, and again, you know, you know, I'm sure there's war times and other things where it gets a lot of things, but, you know, it's peacetime and it's Australia and it's, you know, we're not in a recession, etc. cetera. Um, trying to do things for the right reasons and understanding what they are is really important. Yeah. And I think without it, it doesn't really matter what you do. So if you're not doing things for the right reasons, and sometimes the, the, you're going to have bad outcomes, like, or at least if you're me, you're definitely going to sometimes have bad outcomes. <laughs> it's really important. So, uh, okay, so the one thing I wanted to talk about um, that is deeply rooted in Stoicism that I find incredibly fascinating, um, and I'm keen to get your take on this, Duncan. So the Stoics had this thing called resigned acceptance. And so, like, believe it or not, but the ancient Greeks were rather smart cookies, and they had already figured out, like, they knew back then that the Earth was not the centre of the universe, but they also knew back then that the, uh, the universe um, or... Um, the nature of all things was expanding and contracting and that the Stoics um, had already posited that the universe is created and destroyed over a seemingly infinite number of times. So to get back to resigned acceptance is basically that your life has been laid out an infinite number of times in the past and it will do so in the future and there's nothing you can do to change that otherwise no one is fate. But then there's still the element of how you can control your mind and how you can control your approach to that inevitable fate. So Duncan, I just wanted to first ask you, like, do you think that this is something that is plausible or have you actually given that any thought before? Controlling your own fate? Or, well, or... first of all, having a fate. So um, in this way, like there being a positive uh, that the universe is infinite in terms of that it is infinitely burst and destroyed and burst and destroyed over yeah um, like yeah i mean so this is we're getting into determinism i suppose yeah um which is which is fate um so determinism is that everything's predetermined um and that you have a fate and it doesn't matter what you do it's going to occur um and my thoughts um on this is that the human body is a biochemical operating system and there's lots of wiring built into this um so, as an example, I've just been looking at some psychology stuff, um, and there's classical conditioning. And this is where you can join something on to, you know, your behavior onto something else just by association. So, for instance, if I ring a bell and give, you know, you food, by the time, at some point, to stop giving you food, if I ring a bell, you'll get hungry and you'll salivate. Yeah. And this is involuntary. And so, there's all these things that are happening the whole time. Um, there's all these cognitive biases. So one we talk about, I think, was that confirmation bias, but also you know positive, a fundamental, um, fundamental attribution error. Um, so that your body basically is run with all these sort of inbuilt bugs, if you want to call them that. And I think one of the key bugs is that you're not aware of what the bugs are. They're subliminal, and so you think that you make a hundred percent of decisions based on like pure logic. But think about it, like if you're tired. Do you make different decisions than if you're well-rested? Yeah. Think about how much this stuff is just going on and that you're basically constantly being conditioned in many, many different ways. And so I believe that the more you're aware of how your biochemical operating system works, the more you can see how it is driving your decisions. But that I know for me, as an example, 10 years ago, Duncan thought I was a rational, logical human <laughs> and that I made the same decision given the same data points every single time. Um, and so 
I think that the more I've been able to learn about this, the more I think I've been able to see what my body is doing and then be like, well, hang on, is that actually what I want to do rather than having it be predetermined? So no, I don't think there's a fate, but I do think that the more you learn about how your biochemical operating system works, the more you can actually stop it from making decisions for you. Mm. Okay, so this is actually um, very similar to the story that um, was laid out in the podcast about an episode of Lost where um, for anyone who's seen Lost before, there was an episode with Locke, um, the, the old man and the rock star guy named Charlie. Um, and so to put a long story short, um, Charlie wanted some drugs because he was relapsing and Locke told him to go for a walk where he was then chased down by a pig, which was then led into a trap set by Locke. And so Locke had known all of this was going to happen. And the, the rock star was very upset and demanded his drugs back, blah, blah, blah. And Locke just basically turned around and said, um, being able to make a choice based on anything other than instinct is what separates you from a simple animal. And so the idea of cultivating your ability to reason or being in harmony with nature uh, in Stoicism is similar to what's at play here. Um, so the idea is that if you understand what is actually made up of reality or nature, then you can be in a much better position to control it rather than simply being driven mm. by your emotions or your instincts or your impulses where you are then a slave to it and you start and you just continue to perpetuate mistakes because you don't understand the cycle that you're stuck in. And I thought that was a really, really good way of uh, giving it like a, an example of someone who understands um, you know, human behavior but also um, you know, laws of nature well enough to be able to think two, three steps ahead and, and you know, cultivate a outcome that he wanted. Um, so I thought that was very similar to the example that you gave about um, your own body. Yeah, I think, well, this is in my summary, being virtuous well, you know, is not allowing ourselves to be controlled by our desire or pleasure or our fear of pain. Mm. Um, and so this is kind of your bio chemical operating system what pleasure so you know in your head is like there are three happy hormones serotonin dopamine oxytocin it's like eat chocolate you know happy hormones go off you know have sex happy hormones go off you know fall in love happy hormones go off oxytocin and so yeah you, you, you can run around trying to you know be, make as much pleasure you know hormones go off as possible in your head um as opposed to doing it because it's a virtuous thing and so um I think that you can have the happy hormones go off by having eating chocolate or, or, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, having sex. But you can also have it going off by what they call, you know, making the right decision, helping others, other things. Um, and so I suppose I didn't sort of realize that because, I don't know, I didn't enjoy school <laughs> over many times. And so the, the only sort of the, the best you know, I, times I've felt good was, was when I was basically running for pleasure, not mm. through virtue and you know, I, th I sort of did school because it was like, you want a good job so that you can then buy a lobster and you want lobster because then it gives you pleasure, you know? And if I, you know, don't get a good job, I can only buy myself wheat picks, which I think, which is like, um, I don't know what if you have wheat picks in America, <laughs> um, but like oatmeal, let's call it oatmeal. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is actually, um, I guess, somewhat related to another uh, terminology that the Stoics like to use called oikiosis. <laughs> <laughs> pronounce it again oikiosis oh god I, 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 I think I nailed that, that one how do you spell it o-i-k-e-i-o-s-i-s 
Alright. <laughs> James did philosophy at university, so James has a bit more of an understanding of some of the stuff than I do. <laughs> but um so Oikios is think it's, it's about the perception of something um as one's own. So what Stoicism <laughs> talks about is what you can control. And that's your not only just like, you know, adversely your mind, but your expectations. Right, so, um, and it's a really, really good quote here, is that you don't base your happiness on anything that you do not have full control over, because that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Um, A really good example is when you're in the car, and you're driving down the freeway, and someone cuts you off. What do you do? You get upset, or annoyed, because this person Mm. just, um, you know, why do we get upset? Because we expect everyone to adhere to an unspoken set of rules. So Stoicism posits that not only is this unrealistic because we have no control of, over what others do, so why should we be upset about it? Right, so we, um, we should steep ourselves in this state of removing judgment or allowing ourselves um, being heard by others. Um, and so what Stoics do is they, they practice daily with a meditation or um, with a set of um, with a with a transcript reminding themselves that each day they will be met with interference, ingratitude, insolence, disloyalty, etc., etc. But this is not to be pessimistic about the world, but to prepare them for when they should happen. They have low to no expectations, and so are prepared for um, the eventuality of that. But if it doesn't happen, they're pleasantly surprised. And I feel like this is actually why people think Stoics are quite negative. Um, like if you were to just mention Stoicism to someone who hasn't read much on it, as opposed to someone who was virtuous because of the practice they put in in order to, uh, I guess, be in harmony with what happens. Yeah, I think this is just part of being in harmony with nature, you know. Um, so a serenity prayer, I should really say, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, so I think a big part of this is like you, you don't get annoyed about things you can't change, mm. but the things you can do get annoyed about them and change them. <laughs> it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah. Um, given that we've been through quite a long time now, that we should move on to the next one, which is the skeptics or skepticism. Now, this is a different definition to modern skepticism. And so here's my summary. Skeptics denied that knowledge is possible and urge you to suspend judgment for the sake of mental tranquility. So an example of this is, was there ever a time in your life when something bad happened to you, but it turned out to be good? Oh. And I've got a couple of examples and then a sort of broader point here. So um, I went on a skiing holiday um, and on day two of a two-week skiing holiday, I broke my collarbone into three pieces. (laughs) And so I how, couldn't How did you ski. break your collarbone, Duncan? How did... uh, my brother crashed into me, uh, and I now believe it was his fault. And he, um, so he, anyways... he walked away completely unscathed, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so um, I, I couldn't ski, and I couldn't use one arm, because when it's in three pieces, you have to be very still. And so I was like, well, great. You know, as if I want this to happen, I'm on a skiing holiday. I have to sit in a bed. And I couldn't even read, because I could only use one hand properly, and it's hard to turn pages with one hand. And so from this, I was like, well, if I can't do that, maybe I should listen to audiobooks. And this got me into audiobooks. This was in 2009, so almost 10 years ago now. Um, and actually, it was the best thing that I think could happen because it meant that I read probably 100 times more books a year than I when I wasn't listening to audio because I could do it when I was commuting to work. I could do it when I was exercising or whatever. And so in hindsight, breaking my collarbone was like the best thing that could happen. 
Mm. Like seriously, my life is infinitely better. And I would definitely go and have my collarbone broken again. Like, uh, of course, 100%, 100% of the time, right? But at the time, I was just a grumpy person in pain in bed. And so I think that there's many, many times, and this is like suspending judgment because, you know, you, you don't want to like label something and then grind into it. And so I was wondering if you'd ever had any other big ones where something that you thought was bad actually turned out to be. Like that was like literally probably the single most important thing for determining who I am today yeah. was the amount of reading I've done. I, I read a lot, like 300 books a year, like a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a meta um, point I really want to make here, but I will answer your question first. So um, I can think specifically of one instance where this is um, more than apparent. Uh, and that was in my last job where I'd say about a year ago today, changes had started happening that made me far less engaged in my work. And I felt like everything that I've been working towards and that the years that I put into uh, this, uh, this work, this, this company, etc., cetera, um, was, like, was kind of being lost. And that was you know, very confronting at the time. But what that did was shifted my trajectory and put me on a different path. And that path led me to where I am today, which is in a much, much, much better place, uh, very happily engaged and passionate about what I'm doing um, in a different role somewhere else. Um, mm. But it gives you real pause to think about exactly that notion that if the first you know, um, card didn't fall or domino, then the future series of events would not have played out the way they did. Um, and so the meta point I wanted to make is that we are the sum of our experiences to put things um, very, very simply, right? Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you can consider in there. Um, at least I believe that. Um, and so... If at any point in your life when you feel like that you are in a state of um, you know, tranquility or that you are truly happy, then everything bad that's happened to you in your life had led you to this point, as well as the good. Um, and so just getting bringing this back to skepticism, so what the skeptics, um, I guess, would, uh, would tell people is to suspend judgment indefinitely and to always, I guess, with a view, never think of a bad uh, event as being intrinsically bad because you don't actually know what it means yet. You have to wait for, the, for it to play out in its entirety, which you can't really say is finished until you're finished and you're kaputski. <laughs> so, um, so what the skeptic would say is that it's not that time heals all wounds, it's just that time will tell. And so everything that we have is the sum of our experiences. Yeah, um, so I agree with this. Like, you know, you are some of your experiences in, in some respects. And so you're going to have, or at least if, if you're like me, good and bad experiences. And how you respond to the bad experience is really what matters. And so there's a quote I like from Buddha. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of harming another. Oh, yeah, I love it. You end up getting burnt. So you're the one holding this. Mm. Um, and so... There are going to be bad things, but if you just constantly hold on to the badness of that and, and someone did something wrong to me, that's not necessarily good. And so I think that there's like a sort of profile of, of how you view events in the past and there's going to be good and bad ones. And that ultimately, hopefully, anorexia, anorexia, you can come to view all bad events as actually having been good. 
So James talking about his job, um, you know, and I don't think at the time when the set of events and, you know, things, but now I think you really like your current job and I think that you might even say that you like it more than your last job. I'm going to probably get in trouble for saying that. I'm not sure I'm going to say that. Um, and, and, you know, and for me, like broken shoulder at the time, but now like it was the best thing. And like, seriously, I would break my shoulder again uh, <laughs> to, to, to get this to happen. Mm. And I think that there have been some times like, I don't know, you know, romantic relationships don't end well. And, you know, sometimes you're not a happy camper, um, but that ultimately, hopefully the bad fades and then there's inside of that a lessons. What's the learning from this? How can I hopefully, you know, look to, to you know, learn and, and live a better life because of this? Pain so plus I think perfection, it, Ray Dahlia. Yes, I think ultimately a pain plus perfection equals progress. And if you get that progress, right, then ultimately that event isn't bad. It's mm. a good event. So then when you think back about it in the future, yeah. you actually have a positive view on it. Yeah. Yeah, so um, and Epic uh, Epic would say, um, it is not the things that we are disturbed by, but the principles and notions that we attach ourselves to those things. So in every instance, it's the event that that, that happens in of themselves uh, are, 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 are a truth. Um, we just have to find our understanding of that truth. And so, for example, a bad breakup. For a lot of people, because of the hurt, they attach to that as the truth, which is just pain. But, for example, if you're a skeptic and you withhold that judgment and you can go through the hurt, you can still acknowledge that it hurts and you can still acknowledge that it's a very painful process to endure. But with the overall understanding that this is going to lead your life down something, uh, down another path, and then you can do the work in terms of reflecting on what happened what can you learn from it? How can you progress? Um, so I, th I definitely do believe through all of these different schools, I find one of the meta teachings is it's not about uh, how do you navigate your way through this world of different experiences of pain and pleasure. It's about how do you assign value to universally truthful things so that your own subjective uh, input is one that is of virtue and not one that is driven by instincts and emotions. Cool. I think it might be come to wrap this up because I've got to head off. Um, so I suppose the final question I had is, is any of this actually important? Um, and I suppose <laughs> if, if you'd asked 20-year-old Duncan, he would have been like, what are you talking about? Um, but I think that you know life is made up of decisions uh, and that if you think about what makes a, an important decision, like should I, for instance, be trying to let go of the pain of this bad event in the past? Should I be trying to be virtuous? Is it okay to not be virtuous? You know, is a simple life better? That you actually, you know, you know, one definition that James used to say that philosophy is asking the right questions. It's not giving answers. And I find that, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living, which is a Socrates quote. Mm. Um, and that this is a way to examine things and that I slowly am able to make better decisions or perhaps the way is less bad decisions. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, yes, they are. And so I don't think that necessarily I should spend my entire hours, waking hours, you know, just doing this. But I think zero time pondering this, and 10 years ago there was zero, isn't how I want to spend life. Um, and so, so I'm trying to think about what makes a good life. What, what does it mean to live a good life? What is the common good? Are really questions that I think determine how you make your decisions. And I think that looking at different people's ways of thinking about this in the past and trying to extract the bits you like and you know discard the bits you don't is really important so yeah i do think that there is value here okay so summary time i'll go first so um 
just in, re in response to Duncan's question about is all this important? Well, I think we each need to ask ourselves the question is what is important to me? And so I would posit that if finding a life that is full of happiness um, is important to you, then I would suggest that at least understanding the foundational teachings of these schools are very important uh, because they might not give you the truth that you're seeking to live a happy, happy life for yourself. You might just decide to be a full-blown hedonist and just go off and indulge yourself. But um, I believe that there is a lot of useful tools in here that will help you navigate that path. So, for example, Epicureanism is really just understanding that um, there are bare necessities that you have to um, take stock for in order to achieve that. And the main uh, argument for that is that there are things beyond your control that you do not need to worry about, and there are things that are within your control, which are your thoughts and actions, which you can um, use to guide your, um, I guess, your path. Um, then with Stoicism, it kind of takes it to the next level and suggesting that to be truly happy is to be one who lives virtuously. And um, I, I really believe that in Stoicism, it's not uh, that people are, um, need to be emotionless to achieve that, but it's just that you are a master of your emotions. So you still feel love, you still feel like anger, you still feel all of these different uh, things that make us human beings. But you are able to observe those, embrace them, and not let them dictate how you relate to or, um, I guess, interact with the world around you. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, so, my sister, I said it before, but like, I think it's worth pondering these questions. And so, what's, what's the best way? Um, really accessible philosophy to me uh, comes from three places. Uh, Michael Sandel, uh, he's got a podcast called Philosopher's Corner. Um, philosophize this with Stephen West um, and then Alain de Baton and we did a um, talk on one of his things in the past he's got a thing called the School of Life there's a YouTube channel he's also got talks that he's put on there and Al so Alan de Baton I believe yeah I would say listen to them and then also try to find a friend who you can talk to them about like such as James and I are now because at least for me that's where I really start to try to get into these things. Reading them, I often find that it just goes almost in one ear and out the other. <laughs> um, but but being able to talk about this, then you're kind of like, oh, what's that mean? Uh, how about this? And so, yeah, um, it's more than 0% of your time and certainly not 100% of your time for me. Um, this, is, this is something I found that's really enjoyable and valuable. All right. I think we're done, James. Wow. That was quick. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll see you soon, Dave. All right, dude. Bye. Bye.